Hey, let me ask you a question, but feel free not to answer it out loud. What would you think of someone who birthed a child and then who subsequent to it provided in the course of that growing child's life absolutely no guidance in living life? What would you think about that person? I mean, wouldn't that be in every real sense a blatant form of neglect? Do you think God would ever do you that way? Uh, particularly you who are born anew, birthed by the very spirit of the living God. Do you think he would have done that and uh, uh, inaugurated a new relationship with you uh, characterized by the father-child dynamic, do you think he would do that, initiate it, all by grace and mercy? Do you think he would say, I want you? I'm, I'm, I want to adopt you into my family. Do you think he would say something like that only to abandon you in the wilderness of life? It's just not rational. It's just not consistent with the fatherhood of God. If he has birthed you, you need to know he will guide you through life. This is not something you have to coerce him into doing. It is a reflection of the kind intentions of his father heart. Some here have had dads they look up to. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But even in that case, Nobody here has had the perfect dad. Uh, the only one who is, is our father who art in heaven. Do you think the perfect dad, you perhaps never had, but now do, do you think that perfect father would have burst in you his very spirit of adoption only to abandon you and say, now fend for yourself. Do your own thing, for I have no interest in the decisions you make. It's just contrary to the very character of Father God. It's just contrary to the dynamic he has established with those whom he has adopted into his family. And the very kind intention, the very father heart of God, is, I think, very strikingly illustrated in an episode between him and ancient Israel, which is to be found in this wonderful book we've been studying for some time, Numbers, or uh, in the original, In the Wilderness. It was in the wilderness that God met up with his covenant children, ancient Israel, and demonstrated his father heart. I'd like you to see it because it applies to you. It's Numbers chapter 9. That's where we are tonight. Numbers chapter 9, beginning in uh, verse 15. Numbers 9, verse 15. And I was asked the other day uh, about how long I intend to stay in this book. <laughs> and so thank you for your encouraging inquiry. <laughs> As long as I want to. No, no, no. I mean, there's like 34 or 36 chapters, so get comfortable. 
We'll be in it for a while. It's just rich. It's God's word. And the idea is not to get through the Bible. Did you know that? The idea is to get the Bible through you. So, so you got to slow down a little bit. So we're slowing down a little bit. Numbers chapter 9, verse 15. Now, on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And in the evening, it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And folks, that cloud by day, fire by night, is a very striking and dramatic illustration of one thing, the ongoing presence, continuous presence, watch care, emanating from the Father heart of God for his people even during their wilderness journey. The cloud by day, fire by night, or dramatic symbols of the ongoing presence of Almighty God, who though he be transcendent and the great beyond, still comes near to care for those with whom he is in a covenant relationship. And this is a dramatic symbol of Almighty God continuously. See, it says by day and by night. Cloud by day, you couldn't see it by night, and so there was fire. A symbol of the continuous fatherly presence and watch care of Almighty God, just like a cloud, hovering over his people, protecting them, guiding them, and even at night being with them. Hey, let me ask you a question. Did you sleep with a nightlight when you were uh, a kid? Do you do now? Let me ask you that. No, no nightlights? Okay, yeah. Many do. Nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, nightlights. Because at night, you know, it gets a little scary sometimes for a young child or even older ones. It's just something about the night. So a nightlight, this is just something about it. Just a little deal. You get them at Walmart, you know, cost a quarter. It's, and it's just unbelievable. It's not, that it, it's not that it generates a lot of light. It's just enough to pierce the darkness. I don't know. Give a sense of comfort. Break the intensity of your aloneness. You don't feel quite so enveloped by the darkness, even if there's a little, a little nightlight. And so I love this striking symbol of the Father care of God, even during the night watches. You see, he came near. Oh, not as a nightlight. Far better. In, 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 in the, in the image of a fire. Uh, to, to, to shed warmth and, and to comfort his kids in the darkness and, and to see them through the night until uh, the dawn of the next day. Those are the images here, you see. And so it says in verse 17, whenever this cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. And, and in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. So simple and and so good. Um, the Father is there and, and the Father is good and Father knows best. And so they, we, are wise to follow our Father who, though he be for sure, our Father in heaven is very much present with us 
guiding us here on earth. And so God's children at this point were positioned variously in the camp. There might have been two, two and a half million of them, if you can imagine it. And so some might have been closer to the tabernacle, the symbol of the presence of God, than others. Some might have been on the outskirts of it. And it didn't matter. Everyone, regardless of his or her positioning in the camp, regardless of his or her place and station, it didn't matter. Everyone had in common their connection to God as Father. And so the cloud would be visible, you see. No matter where any one of God's kids was in the camp, it would be elevated, you see, so that even the person on the far outskirts of the camp could see this elevated camp and say, oh, my father is speaking. Oh, my father's leading. My father is is guiding. They didn't have to have this experience. You see, secondhand, they had this personal connection, this personal relationship with Abba, Daddy, with Abba Father. And so the cloud would rise and it would be a symbol of the presence, watch, care, and guidance of Almighty God. And so when the cloud was lifted, Above the tabernacle, the people would see it and they themselves uh, would follow it and move forward. Well, a cloud is not new, as you know, not in that day, not in ours. Uh, they were plentiful. But this was a rather unique cloud. This cloud didn't behave like clouds typically behave. This cloud stopped in its tracks, hovered over a particular people group, stayed in place, until it then rose and led them forward. And then, according to divine wisdom, it again would stop, settle, stay, hover above the people until it would move. I mean, this was an atypical cloud. And you know what the point is? If you're connected to God as Father, you're going to increasingly get better at discerning his leading. His cloud of guidance is simply going to become more and more distinguishable from the clouds, which are other sources of guidance, but not divinely ordained. And so today you hear lots of voices and you're subjected to all kinds of information and counsel and advice and directives and it could all be so confusing and yet if you're a growing maturing child of God you're going to become more and more attuned to your father's voice and leading and you're going to be able to distinguish his direction from all other sources so it says in verse 18 at the command of the Lord the sons of Israel would set out and at the command of the Lord they would camp As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. See, it says the command of the Lord. And yet in this sense, it wasn't verbal, was it? It was visual. Here, the command of the Lord was the actual presence and direction of the cloud by day and fire by night. And so they took their lead at this point as if it was a verbalized command of God from the positioning of this cloud which was what God used to remind them of his presence and of his guidance. It was a visible, not verbal, visible signal from Almighty God. And it was God, in essence, commanding them when to stay put and when to move out. In verse 19, even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. 
Now, don't take that lightly. The Israelites were in transition. They were in a phase of their corporate life that was uh, a tad bit uncomfortable. And the reason is they were not where they used to be, but they were not yet where they really wanted to be. So that put them in a transition phase that caused no small discomfort. And when they, we, are in that kind of phase, it's dangerous. Because there's something about human nature. We're inclined to move, to do something, to move, boom, 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 boom. That's when we usually make frenetic, rapid-fire, knee-jerk, bad decisions. <sighs> tough, tough, tough. They did not want to stay put in the wilderness any more than you and I do. I want out of the desert, and so do you. And so this is a tough time. You see, but, but God, in spite of that human inclination, God, through the cloud by day and fire by night, said, I will tell you when to move out. And I'll also tell you when to stay put. So we have this. It's good to recognize it. We have this appetite for movement. We're not good at staying put, especially when we don't like where we is at the time. We're always, always inclined to change the circumstances so, so as to improve upon them. And, uh, and I tell you, that's a very, very dangerous time because usually if we move out prematurely from where we are, it's that premature movement that can actually end, us, end up setting us back. Have you ever had that experience? You, you don't have to answer. So somehow, it's very ironic, sometimes premature movement, when God says camped, actually leads to us uh, taking a few steps backward. So, have you ever been set back by a hasty decision? Boy, I bet you have, because you're human. Me too. I'll bet you've been set back in life and in your forward movement by hasty decisions. In fact, I'll bet some are right here living with the consequences of decisions you wished you didn't actually make. You just took a little time to reflect on, to think on. And you know you did because it looked good, it seemed good, and it would move you out of your present situation, which didn't feel so good. I sympathize with you. I'm trying to tell you that's a very precarious situation for us. When we are unsettled, here's the point, we don't find it easy to settle down and settle in. And one of the indications of a very unsettled person is activity. The rate of activity picks up. Not productivity. Activity. When we're unsettled, on the inside, it's very hard to settle down on the outside. So some of the busiest people, there may be some here, I may be one, I don't know. You tell me. Some of us who are the busiest seem to, uh, to be in control and, and we're probably less in control than anybody else. An unsettled person can't Settle down and is always taking on more, heaping on more. It's a sign of disarray on the inside. What does God say at times like that? He says, stay in the camp, stay put, settle down. No forward movement at this time. Stop moving, stop shaking. 
Stop rattling and rolling. Listen, reflect, do less, think, pray. Not a bad idea. So when we're unsettled, it's a dangerous time because we want to get out of it and rush ahead. But oh, how necessary is the hard work of simply waiting on God. I'm preaching to nobody more than I am to me, so please don't misunderstand. Do you know that's why God doesn't deliver his word generally through angels? He does it uh, through normal human beings to normal human beings so that normal human beings don't get arrogant about what they're saying. See, we all suffer from these, from these same maladies. But a loving God who birthed us says, why don't you slow down And follow my lead. And so it says in verse 20, if sometimes the cloud remained a few days, a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained in the camp. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained until evening uh, or from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted up in the morning, they'd move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days, a month, a year, that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and didn't set out, but when it was lifted, they did set out. God's timing, it looks to me, is a very perplexing thing. Sometimes the cloud, the symbol of his guidance, would remain over the tabernacle for a few days. Sometimes uh, it would remain over the tabernacle, telling them to stay put for a month, sometimes for as long as a year. God's timing, it's perplexing, it's incomprehensible, and yet it's perfect. He knows what, I just don't get it. I don't get God's timing, do you? No, you don't. It's just an irrational kind of a thing. We don't get it. It's incomprehensible. So God's guidance for ancient Israel and for us, you see, it's not only a matter of where we go. Perhaps even more importantly, it's a matter of when we go. Timing, timing is everything. And at this point, it's pretty refreshing. Uh, Israel's doing pretty good. Israel said to, to God, God, you say when. And so it says in verse 23, at the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through Moses. So, folks, here's our challenge as God's kids today. We have to get better at discerning our father's guidance in our lives. And that does not come naturally. You don't get This kind of discernment from your first birth, you can only get it. It begins from the second new birth. From the first birth, it's darkness, it's confusion, it's not wisdom from on high. From the second birth, the one when God adopts you and I into his family by faith in the grand mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son, it's at that point of Second birth, spiritual rebirth, in the, that the process of getting more attuned to the directions of our Father begins to develop. And it simply takes time. But with time and experience and also failure, <laughs> we get better at discerning the will of God. It's just part of the growth process we're to go through. But the Father didn't leave us alone. 
He didn't leave us just to the mercy of time. He gave us some helps in discerning his will. And I just want to briefly suggest two. They are these, God's word and God's people. God's word. As you continue to read it, and not just read it, do it, you develop a greater sensitivity to it. It's like what happened to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 15, verse 16. He said, your words were found and I ate them. Well, they always existed, but at a certain point of his, in his life, he, he connected to it. So too with you and mine. Uh, the word of God is eternal, but at a certain point, when we were born anew, the word of God became important to us, and we had access to it. And so, as with Jeremiah, the words were found, and I ate them, and thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart, which implies hitherto that they were not. You can chew on the truths of Scripture and find them to be bitter, not sweet. And yet over time, as you continue to read and uh, digest and apply and study the Word of God, your taste buds, spiritual taste buds, for it change. So now it is no longer strange and uh, uncomfortable and bitter Now it's your delight, and thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. This is a day when so many of us are falling prey to Internet guidance. And so somebody sends out an email alerting us to the next conspiracy that's going to do us in tomorrow. And you start taking your lead from that. Some of us have more of a taste for Twitter than for the Word of God. I don't want to get my lead from the Internet, do you? The Internet didn't birth me, adopt me. I want to make use of it. As my servant, but not, I don't want to make it my master. I want to develop such a taste for the words of my father that even when he whispers them to me, I could discern his voice. I know it's his cloud of, of guidance. And how does that come? How does that come? Just by chewing, you develop taste buds. That's the way it is. I remember Uh, being on a missions trip with our church years ago to Siberia. Brother Roy, we were together, although in different settings. And uh, I had to eat a few meals in the homes of Russian people, and they just ate different food. Ludmila, I mean no offense, but it was terrible. (laughs) It was raw meat, thought to be a delicacy. It was frozen. Right out of the refrigerator. Do you know what I'm referring to? Nothing? Really? Maybe they were playing a trick on me. (laughs) Well, I wanted to tell you. I looked at my little son, Ben. He looked at me and we thought, what are we going to do? Chew fast, swallow hard. I mean, what are you going to do? Well, we had it almost every day and it was just a fascinating thing. I wouldn't go so far as to say we looked forward to it. Uh, But we were finding ourselves developing a little more of a taste for it. It's quite an amazing sort of a thing. Little children don't have very developed taste buds. That's why they turn their nose up at everything, which later on in life, what little child likes liver? 
Mom, my mother, we thought it was punishment when she gave us that. Mom, what's for supper? Eat it. It's good, she used to say. It's not good. It's liver. Call it what it is. How could liver? And now, oh, man, liver, onions, mashed potatoes, put a bunch of ketchup on it. Man, oh, man. That is really, we didn't have a meal here tonight. I'm hungry. You develop, so that's what, you know, you know, we're born anew, we're, we're babes in Christ, and His Word is a little strange, a little foreign, not entirely distasteful, and that's why you want to keep exposing yourself to it. It doesn't mean you have to understand everything initially. That's not the point. It's the Father feeding us, because He not only has fatherly care, He loves us with a mother's heart as well. Long for the pure milk of the Word of God that you might grow in respect to it. You develop a taste for the Word of God. Jeremiah, your words were found, I ate them, and they became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. And he says, well, because I've been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. So have you. You've been called by the Father, therefore sup on the Father's word. Jesus is the bread of life, and he has expressed all that he's about in inscripturated truth, the word of God. So God's word uh, is a wonderful, wonderful source of uh, guidance and direction for us in our wilderness wanderings. I hope you are partaking of it. And then the second source of help in our journey, God's people. Do you know you can get godly counsel from godly people? I don't know if you, if you knew that. You could, it, it, it really does not have to be the horoscope. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be, hey, I gotta tell you something, it doesn't have to be Oprah's next guest. It doesn't, you know, you just don't have to run out and buy that book. You don't, you don't, you know, with all due respect to Dr. Phil, he doesn't know me from Adam. How's he going to give me wise counsel? Why is, why are millions of people sitting at the feet of people who don't even know him and may not even know the all wise God? I just don't get it. Do you know one of the most oft neglected sources of guidance is getting counsel from godly others. You know what the Bible says? Through presumption comes nothing but strife, Proverbs 13. But with those who receive counsel is wisdom. Why don't you do it? Why don't you identify? That's the beauty of membership, commitment to a local body such as this, because God has seen fit to put in every local body wise counselors from whom we could get advice. No man is, no woman is an island. We're not supposed to make this wilderness journey alone. Why don't you get advice? How many here would have been better off if they sought advice first before making a decision, the consequences of which you're now trying to undo? Me too. Would have helped so much to get advice. Proverbs 12 verse 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. You know why I think we don't seek counsel? We think if we seek the counsel of a a godly man or woman, we're obligated to follow it. No, 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 no. You're missing it. We're only obligated to submit to the commandments of God. And if uh, another Christian is uh, reminding you of the commandments of God, of course, it's a non-negotiable. But if you're at a point of decision, some of which we saw in this... uh, Video, what school do I go to? Uh, you know, do I sell this house? Do I not? What do I mean? What do I, I mean? Those kinds of things. That's not, that's not a black and white 
uh, subject of a commandment of God. You have to make a decision about it. You get counsel and you don't have to follow it. You don't owe it to the counselor to follow the counselor's counsel. You owe it to yourself to listen to it. There's a big difference. I remember when my wife and I were, uh, we met overseas in Germany. I was a missionary there. She was in the military and she, she uh, begged me to marry her and I, and I gave in and uh, everyone has their own twist on a story. This is my twist. And so, uh, so we got married and then we uh, realized we had not thought about, um, uh, wow, how should I do this? We had not thought about birth control. We, we got married and we, um, we just hadn't thought about what does God say about about this, about birth control, about means, about, are we, are we just, I'm probably getting in, I should not be doing this, but <laughs> I'm just, we did things well, I, I want to tell you, but, and so when we got married, we didn't know what we were doing to be, which is kind of good in a sense, and so I went to get counsel, and I was in a missionary organization, I knew plenty of godly men and women, and my wife and I went, and I got counsel from the men, she from the women, and stuff like that. And uh, I counted it up, 12 different people we, we sought counsel from, really godly people. And at the end, the counsel didn't help. It confused us like crazy because it was right down the middle. Six said one thing, six said the other. So I thought, oh, my goodness, this seeking of counsel thing is not all it's cracked up to be. I'm in worse shape than when I started. And I realized I'm missing the whole point of counsel. You don't get counsel so someone else can make the decision for you. You don't get counsel so that someone will tell you what to do. That's what a cult does. No, 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 no. You get counsel so that you can uh, be helped to know of all of the facets surrounding the very important decision you have to make. And then you take the sum total of all the facets of the good counsel you got and you decide for yourselves before God what fits. Now, we made a decision, but I assure you, it was a well-informed decision because we knew all the twists and turns. One says this, but one says that. One finds this in this passage, and yet the other says... And so when we finally made our decision, and of course, you you as a Christian, you make these things, it's a matter of Christian liberty. You do these things... Uh, personally and privately before God. But why not do it having done your due diligence? Why not get counsel? You don't have to follow it. But you benefit from the sum. Through presumption comes nothing but strife. But with those who receive counsel is wisdom. So those are two helps in our wilderness journey. God's word. God's people. And both help us. But I want to ask you something. Um, we're missing something today. We have God's word. We have God's people. But do you notice what we don't have? What happened to the cloud? Where's the fire? Am I missing it? I don't see anything in Pearland. Where I'm from in Pearland. I don't see the cloud. I don't see the fire. Do you? Let me know. I need to move into your neighborhood. Why did God take away the cloud and the fire? You are right, my dear sister. He took them away because he gave us something far, far better 
as a source of guidance. Do you realize the cloud and fire are external sources of divine guidance? And as striking as they are, they could be missed. They're external sources of divine guidance. And God replaced them. They're only foreshadowing of a far better one. He gave us an internal source of guidance. It's the very spirit of our Father in us. Hence, Paul says in Romans 8, 14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You and I do not any longer have the cloud and the fire on the outside because we have God's Spirit. On the inside. We have the spirit of the God who made the cloud and the fire. Oh my goodness. These are better days. Every child of God will have his father's spirit in them. And every child of God, therefore, will be led by his father's spirit in them. The spirit of God will lead the sons and the daughters of God. And he does so through the circumstances of God, the peace of God, the word of God, and the wise people of God. And so the God who birthed you, me, will not abandon us in our wilderness journey. Nope. We're children of his, and he is the perfect father we so sorely need. He intends to be present with us. He intends to care for us, to hover over us, and ultimately to lead us home his way, and in his time. And therefore, it makes no sense to get ahead of our father. So I close with this. I was a missionary in England, and I was asked to house sit for some other missionaries who had to come back on furlough to the States. And I was glad to do it. And they also had two dogs. And they asked if I would mind caring for them. And I said, absolutely not. I love dogs. So I had their home, and I was a single guy at the time. I had the dogs. This is really cool. And I decided one day I'm going to take the dogs on a walk. It was a small British uh, rural area, and there was a village, oh, I don't know, maybe a mile and a half, two miles down the road. And so I got the leashes for these dogs. They were all excited. You know, you say to dogs, you want to go on a walk, and they go crazy, and they were just going nuts. And so I got them come down. I put the leashes on them. I take them outside, and as soon as the door opened, boom, they were just pulling me. I thought they were going to pull my arm out of the socket. It was very hot. It doesn't get all that hot in England most of the time. But on this occasion, it was unseasonably warm. It was really boiling, boiling hot. And they are yanking the whole way. And they are gagging. You know how, how they gag and they're just, and they're foaming at the mouth. And not to mention, I'm about ready to die. And, and, I, and, and you know, we're, we finally get to the village and they just conk out. And I'm thinking, man. The dogs are cute, but they're kind of stupid because because they exhausted themselves pulling me at their pace to the place I intended to take them at my pace. You get it? And I intended to take them there because I knew they would enjoy it. There was a stream. It was an open field. I had treats in my pocket. I was going to give them when we got there. The whole deal. And I remember saying, oh, God, surely I can be smarter than these dumb dogs. You have stated clearly and uh, frequently and in many places in the scriptures what your intention is for a guy like me. It's to bring me home. It's to bring me through 
out of and into my promised land and yours. Ample promises to that effect. The Lord speaks about pleasures we can't even imagine, a dimension we cannot relate to. The Lord speaks of a total purifying and eradication of sin, which is our terrible, terrible adversary, a new and glorified body. He talks about a celebration that has no end. He talks about being in his presence, uh, seeing him face to face. And he talks about the time when there will be no longer any tears. In fact, there isn't any death, which is such a harsh reality for us uh, today. And he talks about all those things being part of this life, but not of that life. And, and he says, I'm, I'm constructing, I'm preparing. Where I am, there you'll be with me also. And I'm ready and I'm preparing. And there'll be the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we'll sup together and we'll eat and we'll consummate our relationship. We as the bride, he as our heavenly husband. And God spilled it. There's no mystery about it. Oh, no, he loves us so much. He wants us to know of the destination which makes us all the more foolish when you're, we're yanking at the chain, trying to get God's timing to be our timing, trying to move at our uh, clip instead of at his clip. And I think so many of us are just exhausted, emotionally drained, just plumb tuckered out because we're trying to get to good places way ahead of the lead of our father who told us, I'm bringing you to the best place, an unimaginably glorious place where there'll be the absence of all that ails you, of sin and unholiness as unbridled service and worship on into eternity. And so he says, be still. Know that I am God. Follow my lead. You don't need a cloud. You don't need the fire. You have my word. You have other people around you who can help you along the way. You have my spirit in you, which is a very mark of the fact <laughs> that you're mine forevermore. What an unusual application. Be smarter than dogs, okay, folks? <laughs> Lord Jesus, the more we find out about you, the more we love you. That you do these things for us with such patience is overwhelmingly remarkable to us. That you have such an interest in us. That you have invested your very spirit in us is overwhelming. Overwhelming. That you call us by your name. Incomprehensible. That you fashioned and orchestrated a plan for each of us from before time such that in your mind, in your book, it's been ordained for us already every day when as yet there has not yet been one of them. Oh God, these plans you have for us, you know of, and they're for welfare and not for calamity. You've spelled it out. Oh God, we're overwhelmed. Which is all the more reason why it's so irrational for us to lag behind or get ahead too far. Oh God, sometimes we stay put. Sometimes we move forward. Not a thing without your guidance, without your leading. Oh, God, would you help us to be better at making decisions, better at discerning your voice, better at being slow and careful, 
better at consulting with others, better at consulting your word, better at slowing down, better, Lord Jesus, at following your lead. Good shepherd, we are your sheep, sometimes a little foolish. Oh, God, would you grant us your mind, your wisdom, and your guidance. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you do for us. Have done in casting our sins behind your back. Will do in preparing a place for us that we might be with you forevermore. We can't wait. Until then, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the experience of following your lead. This we pray in your most wonderful name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen, amen.